I want to greet those of you that are joining us virtually through Facebook, and uh, we are glad that you can worship with us over these next uh, several weeks. Uh, that may become more and more the norm, but uh, for the time being, we intend to have four major ministries still going. Our AM worship, our small groups, if your leader uh, and their group decides to meet, our Wednesday prayer meeting, and uh, CBA. Otherwise, we've curtailed all other ministries for the time being. We may have to make additional adjustments as the situation unfolds, but you can listen in on Uber or you can uh, watch us on Facebook. So for the past few Sundays, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 contain some of the Bible's most detailed instructions on the subject of spiritual gifts. But an important truth in all this can be easily missed. In speaking of our spiritual gifts, chapter 12 repeatedly takes us back to another critical biblical principle. The desire and design of God for unity in the midst of diversity. For instance, if you look at God who made nature, and He made nature's creatures, and you take the design God made in the bee colony. Uh, it readily demonstrates unity in diversity. Uh, bees are diverse in that there are three major kinds of bees in a colony, uh, from biggest in size to smallest. comes in exact reverse of their abundance or frequency in the colony. So there are the very rare and yet larger queen bees, there are the less rare but smaller uh, drone bees, and then there are the very plentiful worker bees. Now these bees exhibit tremendous diversity in their activity, but they are united in that they all seek to make the hive thrive. Some bees will build the wax combs that they live in. Others forage for nectar and water and pollen. Uh, some flap their wings to sort of air condition and ventilate the hive. Uh, some are guard bees, and, and uh, various bees will have their tasks change over their lifetime depending on the needs of the hive at that moment. But nonetheless, it's very clear that bees exhibit highly uh, specific diversity, and yet they have this single-minded devotion to make the hive thrive. And so we see in God's good design of bees, we see unity in diversity. Now, unity in diversity is really the only way to have beauty if you also have complexity. You see, we see this in regards to symphonies. The greatest cellist in the world is greatly aided by having many excellent percussionists accompany them. And the percussionists are aided by the brass. And the brass have the woodwinds. And so you see is how a symphony gets beauty within complexity. In the symphony, each part has a part. And each part must do its part. Otherwise, the harmony of the symphony comes apart. Now, suppose you went to the symphony and each instrumentalist does whatever it pleases. Well, chaos would ensue and beautiful music, we would lose. It would no longer be a symphony. It would be a fight between individuals. Equally, if you went to the symphony and all the woodwinds were missing, or a large segment of the brass were missing, if some of the people were there, but the percussionists refused to participate, 
If you had that situation, then the score would go out the door and we would be left musically poor. The beautiful effects of unity in diversity producing harmony is not just what we see in bee colonies and symphonies, we even see it in industry. Uh, Henry Ford took the labor-intensive and tremendously expensive task of manufacturing automobiles, and he turned the world on its heels by the introduction of the moving assembly line. The moving assembly line is unity in diversity, and as it is applied to industry. Henry Ford divided the construction of the automobile into 84 parts. 84 distinct steps. And he had his employees become an expert at just that one step. But they could do it almost with a blindfold. They knew what to do on their particular part. And so the entire assembly of an automobile with all of its intricacies was broken down to 84 small tasks. And yet all of those tasks were unified in the mission so much so that Ford became very proficient in his transactions. So much so that the time it took to make an automobile, before the assembly line, before he introduced his moving assembly line, it used to take Ford 12 hours to build a single car. He reduced that to two and a half. The introduction of this whirring monument to, to unity despite diversity, it drove the price of the Model T down. It was a hefty $850 in 1908, but it became less than $300 by 1925. The synergy found in unity in diversity forever changed our society. Workers were enabled to produce more. So they were able to be paid more. And that began to change standards of living all across the country. Uh, Henry's workers could now become his customers. And by 1914, Ford's production rate of 308,162 cars eclipsed the number of all other manufacturers and cars in the world. One company built more cars than everybody who was trying. Friends, there's synergy when we have unity in our diversity. And we see that in industry very clearly. There is beauty when we see unity in diversity, and we hear that in the symphony. And there is flourishing when we find unity in diversity as we see in the bee and its colony. Now, the God of nature is the God of Scripture. Amen? Okay, so today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 from an angle most saints miss in all of this. In our excitement to grasp the what's and the why's of spiritual gifts, we miss the how's of this passage. And we miss this critical message. The Holy Spirit masterfully structures His holy instruction regarding spiritual gifts, and He anchors it around this one powerful principle. The truth that God's design and His desire for His church is that we exhibit unity in diversity. That we, as His church, exhibit unity in diversity. 
that we would do this for His glory. Now, for various reasons, <laughs> the fallen human condition prefers uniformity to unity. Uh, we think that we are best collectively if we all look the same racially, if we all dress the same fashionably, if we all vote the same politically, and if we all come from the same ethnicity. And, and this kind of, of, of thinking where we prefer uniformity and conformity to unity and diversity, it can seep even into our churches. Uh, because in our churches, you'll see that people often cluster together based on what ministry they most prefer. And since some saints prefer uh, this ministry or this program or this aspect of church life, uh, you'll see churches that put greater emphasis collectively on those things. Uh, some churches emphasize their teaching, and some their singing, and some this particular program. Now, we cluster then together based on what style we prefer of those ministries. Um, do we prefer a certain length of service or something shorter? Do we prefer uh, uh, the absence or presence of hymns and choruses in our service? Uh, do we prefer the inclusion or omission of electric guitars and drums or a choir? Do we gather around a preacher and a people who wear suits and ties? Or do we prefer jeans and tees? And you can go to some churches where everybody looks the same. And all that they do is pretty similar. Nobody's really stretched to be out of their comfort zone. Nobody's ever forced to make a sacrifice of praise because it's all what we like all the time. And if you like something else, go to the 1030 service or go down the street. Right? We like to go to churches where everyone is our age or at least in our life stage. And it's in the warp and woof of the fallen human condition that one of our first questions when we visit a congregation is we look around and we silently say, are there enough folks here like me? Ideally, is everyone kind of like me? You see, we tend to perform, uh, prefer uniformity and conformity. And we are less excited about, about unity in the midst of diversity. Because frankly, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's easier if everyone looks like me and thinks like me and acts like me. And well, that's pretty easy. The idea that this is uncomfortable is not something that has to be true. It doesn't have to be true that this is uncomfortable if you believe church is primarily not about you. If you believe church is primarily about Jesus, well then, unity and diversity can bring a richness and a beauty that, that uniformity and conformity cannot hold a candle to. And no matter what we want, what matters in Jesus' church is what Jesus wants. And Jesus wants to create a kingdom community where, where uniformity and conformity and disharmony are all set to the side. So that something that only Jesus can offer actually resides. That when people walk in, they go, this is different. This is not how everything else in our world works. 
You see, Jesus desires and Jesus designed for there to be unity in the diversity in His body. Jesus designed in Scripture for the older believer to be able to be a godly example and help to the younger believer. Where all the barriers that would otherwise divide us are swallowed up because our new identity is found primarily in Jesus. Not in our ethnicity, politics, or income. Jesus' church is a church where we understand and embrace there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ. That's the deal. They should call us Christians. Christ ones. That is the uniting factor. Jesus' church is a church where if a man came in wearing a, a gold ring and fine clothing and he came into our assembly, James says, and at the same time, a poor man came in in shabby clothing, that both of those people would be welcome in Jesus' house. That we wouldn't be the kind of church, James says, where we pay attention to the one in the fine clothing and we say, here, you sit in the good place. And then we say to the poor person, you stand over there. Sit at my feet. Jesus' church is a church where, where the wealthy ought to be able to worship next to the widow and the orphan in their hour of distress. Jesus' church is a church where we ought not hinder the little children from coming to Christ. And that means they're going to run down the aisles and tear some stuff up as they go. That means some of us are going to have to sit down in junior jail or junior church or whatever your church calls it to keep them here learning about Jesus so they can, they can finger paint the walls when they're supposed to finger paint the little piece of paper. Somebody has to give up a Sunday so the little people are not hindered to come to Jesus. Given the challenges attendant with our fallen status, we must turn to Jesus and help Him help us see the beauty, the synergy, the flourishing that can only come when we submit to His plan of having unity in diversity. We must allow the Word of God to so wash us that we not only see it, but we begin to seize it. Because this is a countercultural and yet very biblical example of what our King wants us to sample. And we won't get there leaning on our fallenness. So as you turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, you're going to find that on page 1219 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, use one of ours. Page 1219 will take you to 1 Corinthians 12. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite You as Lord of the church to help us recalibrate our thinking. The natural man likes conformity, likes uniformity, and does not like to be having to accommodate for the other. We like to have the world bend around our preferences, our uh, areas of interest, what we like and when we like it. And yet, you're building a church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And uh, Lord Jesus, your church is different. You call us a peculiar people, 
And if we're going to be peculiar, we want to be peculiar not because we're weirdos, but because we are devoted followers of Christ. We follow Your will and Your Word and Your ways as revealed in Your Word. And we pray that You would do a work in us that we would get out of the way, that You would allow us to be humble enough to listen to Your plan and then to implement Your plan that we would not see one another as non-essential, but rather as uh, someone redeemed by the blood of Christ who's been gifted by the Spirit of God uh, to help establish the church of God for the fame of Your name. We ask that we would see this more and more in our churches, and especially in this church, because this is the only church we have any say in how it will be governed and how we will use our gifts. We pray, Lord Jesus, in these many weeks in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that You would help us not only discover and uncover our gifts, but also that we would understand that we need unity in diversity to make the symphony of beauty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, so all throughout Corinthians, whenever he's come to a new topic, uh, under study, he'll say, and now concerning such and such. And so from chapter 12, 13, and 14, this is the topic under study. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Brothers, he's writing to Christians. It's Christians that have spiritual gifts. I do not want you to be uninformed. So you can be a Christian and you cannot know much biblically about this topic. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is, there's all these goofy, sensational things, and if they lead you away from things that honor and glorify Jesus, they're just goofy and sensational. They're not actually biblical or helpful. Now, there are varieties of gifts. Diversity. But the same Spirit. Unity and diversity. And there are varieties of service. Diversity. But the same Lord. Unity and diversity. And there are varieties of activities. Diversity. But the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Unity and diversity. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That verse has diversity. To each is given. And then it has unity for the common good. Are you seeing a theme? The theme is unity in diversity. For to one is given through the Spirit an utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and another faith by the same Spirit, and another healing by the one Spirit, and another the working of miracles, another prophecy, another the ability to distinguish between the spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another an interpretation of tongues, and all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So there's all this diversity in that body of gifting, and yet it all came from the same Spirit for the same purpose. The unity in diversity. Verse 12, For just as the body is one, and it has many members, and all the members of the body, though are many, as one body. So it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. A lot of diversity, and yet all unity by the Spirit. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Diversity. And if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. God had put unity over this diversity. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, diversity, and yet one body, unity. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, with which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division. That's another word for unity. But the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually, diversity, members of it. And God has appointed in the church diverse offices, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and administrating in various kinds of tongues. And are all apostles, are, <clears throat> are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And that will lead us to chapter 13's famous, The Way of Love. Now I want you to notice in the Holy Spirit's discussion of spiritual gifts, there is a notable, noticeable mention of the Trinity in verses 4, 5, and 6 specifically. The Trinity is very clear in verses 4, 5, and 6 specifically. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activity, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And that brings us to our first point today. And the first point is this. God alone exhibits diversity and unity perfectly. God alone exhibits unity in diversity perfectly, and we see this within the members of the Holy Trinity. If you want to say, what does this look like perfectly? Look at God. And what does it look like imperfectly? Look at us. And we should begin to look more and more like God as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So God alone exhibits unity and diversity perfectly, and we see this within the Trinity. When God wanted to speak of the variety of gifts, but the unity of the source, He intentionally uses Trinitarian language. And this is no accident. We're going to see in several passages, this is a precedent. Look again at our passage. There are varieties of the gifts, but the same Spirit. The first name for God, referring to the Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. That's going to refer to Jesus. Uh, and then there are varieties of activities, but the same God, that's going to be referring to the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. Uh, New Testament scholars note that in the New Testament epistles, uh, it is usually when referring to God the Father, the Bible just uses the generic word for God, theos. That's just what we see in verse 6. 
theos. In referring to God the Son, the New Testament likes to use the word Koryos, which means Lord. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the book called the Septuagint, over 6,000 times in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word for Yahweh or Lord is Koryos. And that's just what we see in verse 5. And then the Holy Spirit, the most common way the epistles refer to the Spirit, is simply Numa, and that's just what we have in verse 4. So when Scripture explains the variety of gifts, It emphasizes that they all come from one source. The same source. And then Scripture goes out of its way to say that we see the unity and diversity of that source. That is, when we look to the source, we look to God. And when He speaks of God, He speaks of God as God in three persons. Hmm. Let's look at that verse again, because we miss it, don't we? Verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers all in everyone. And this is no accident. This is a precedent. He wants us to see the Trinity is present. Turn with me uh, to the next book in our Bibles, which is uh, 2 Corinthians. And uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13.14. 2 Corinthians 13.14 is on page 12.34. 2 Corinthians 13.14. And so Paul writes his last epistle to this church Um, that he has invested so much time, so many tears, so many prayers, urging them, begging them, encouraging them, exhorting them to to follow Christ, to be light in in a city that was just full of darkness and wickedness, uh, to Corinthianize, meant to be an immoral person. And God put a church in that uh, seedy, shady location. And here's what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians. Sort of his last words to that church. 2 Corinthians 13.4 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He leaves them with what we have in our passage. Kurios, theos, pneumatos. When when, when Paul ultimately leaves their vicinity, he leaves them with what? With, with With the ministry of the Trinity upon that body. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're going to see this pattern again because this isn't incidental. This is intentional. This is trying to get us to see something. If, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, so keep turning to the right of Corinthians, you'll get to Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 1243. Ephesians 4, page 1243. Here we again have the Apostle Paul moved by the Holy Spirit to speak about spiritual gifts. uh, To speak about how Christ has given us gifts and how He gave us gifts not just to individuals such as administration and helps and mercy like we see in Corinthians and Romans, but gifts of individuals, apostles and prophets and teachers. And in this, he's going to again point us to the Trinity. So Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 3. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 3. It's going to tell us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, new thing, new member of the Trinity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we've seen Nuitas, we've seen Kurios. And now verse 6, one God. Theos. Which God? The Father of all. God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, the Trinity being mentioned when it's talking about spiritual gifts. 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, who's over all and through all and in all. And, but grace was given to each one of us that each of you has a spiritual gift. But grace was given to each of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember, it's a gift. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. God must give it. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives. We think, oh, Jesus saved us and He redeemed us. He did, but He also gifted us. Listen to how the verse ends. He says, therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, and He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. See, you've been redeemed, and you're still standing here, this side of heaven, because He has a purpose for you to bring Him glory in the now. Through His church. And in saying He ascended, what does it mean? But He also descended into the lower regions of the earth. And He who descended is the One who ascended far above the heavens that He might fulfill all things. Now look at verse 11, speaking of gifts. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the work of the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So every spiritual gift is given for the good of one another. We saw that in Corinthians last week. Until when? Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith so you see unity in the midst of diversity. It's, it's all the same because the Word of God has one source and He doesn't stutter. He's not the author of confusion. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, there are things that are going to pull us apart and take us away from bringing God glory. And that will... Move us away from unity in the midst of our diversity. Verse 15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Jesus, who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What do you see in that passage? You see unity and diversity, and you see the Trinity, the ultimate example Friends, God alone perfectly exhibits unity and diversity. We see this in the Trinity. Uh, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is unity in the Trinity, for God is one in essence. But there's also diversity, for the same God who's one in essence is three in persons. We see the same unity and diversity, not just in who God is, He's one in essence and yet three in persons, but also in how God acts. You see, the triune God is one in purpose, but He's three in how each person of the Trinity accomplishes that one purpose. Because all the members of the Trinity unite in their decision for the redemption of humanity, and yet the Bible tells us it's the Father alone who elects us, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that it's the Son who procures our salvation through His humiliation in the Incarnation. He, he gives victory over temptation. He has a voluntary sacrifice in crucifixion, in substitution for our transgression. And then He proves it all through what? Through His victorious resurrection. And only one member of the Trinity incarnated, was tempted, died, and rose from the dead. And who was that? Kurios, Jesus the Lord. The Father, Theos, elected. Kurios, incarnated and, and died to redeem us. But then you have Pneumatos, the Spirit. And the Bible says it's the Spirit that seals us. The Spirit that indwells us. He takes up residence in us as a deposit guaranteeing that there is more to come. He will never abandon us or forsake us, right? Because He lives within us. Now, 
Because of the unity in the Trinity, despite its, its diversity, that means we can be confident of this, that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion because who could ever separate us from the love of God if one member of God is already living in us? Because of the love of Jesus we responded to in faith. That means, my friends, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the Trinity, we uniquely, perfectly see unity in diversity and how it functions seamlessly. Did you notice in Scripture that the Spirit glorifies the Son. He doesn't try to usurp the Son. The Holy Spirit never tries to diminish the Son. Uh, turn with me for just a moment to the left of Corinthians, to John 16. John 16 is in the Gospels. John 16 is on page 1148. I want you to see that the unity in diversity in the Trinity is exhibited through humility. Humility. Jesus says in John 16, 12, page 1148, John 16, 12, Jesus Christ, who's the way, the truth, and the life, He knows the truth, He is the truth, and right here He tells the truth. Jesus Christ says in John 16, 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all truth, for He will speak not of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And here it is, verse 14. What's He going to do? What's the Holy Spirit, who is Himself God, going to do? He will glorify Me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. In humility, perfectly, the unity and diversity works only with humility. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, and therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now, God the Son glorifies God the Father. And God the Father glorifies God the Son. There is no uh, petty personal uh, elevation and one-upsmanship. There's always just selfless celebration. It would be, I don't know, as if one member was hurting and we all... And one member was rejoicing and we all could... Have you ever heard that before? That's our passage. Because the Trinity shows us perfectly what we need to get to, though we are imperfect. We're going to see this same reciprocity in the next chapter. Go to John 17. Flip over to John 17, which is right after John 16, in case you were lost. John 17 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. He goes to the Father and says, Glorify Me, not so that I can be glorified, but so that I can turn around and what? Glorify You. There's an other-centricness when you have perfect... Unity and diversity. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth. God the Son says, when I walked this earth, I was made it my mission to glorify God the Father. Having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. It was the Father that told the Son what He should do in this case. And now, verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. What does that mean? It means that Jesus always had glory. And in humility, He gave up some glory so He could give the Father more glory so you and I could come to glory. Think about that, church, if we're going to bring God glory and people to Christ. 
Jesus always had intrinsic glory within His divinity. And yet He voluntarily laid aside, He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped. He momentarily allowed for some of His glory to, to be not as residently, manifestly clear to everyone. And the Father was pleased to glorify the Son. Not only because Jesus was worthy in His divinity, but also because the Father was delighted that the Son should receive it. God the Father wasn't jealous for an instant that God the Son deserved glory. And that is the big difference between God and us in the church, isn't it? We are not especially worthy. Jesus was. The Father is. The Spirit is. We are not especially worthy. But we are really stingy and petty, aren't we? And God is worthy, and He's never stingy or petty. He is so unlike us. You know what? If you had to define that, you would say He was holy. Completely unlike but unity in diversity is exhibited perfectly in the Trinity, so let's learn a lesson from the God of heaven. His nature ought to be our model. Instead of discord, we ought to be of one accord. For if we have any encouragement in being united in Christ, Philippians says, if we have any comfort from Christ's love, if we have any fellowship in the Spirit, if we have any tenderness and compassion, then make Jesus' joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of us should not look out only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, what God exhibits perfectly in the Trinity, God has wisely also created in our human bodies. And that brings us to point two today. Point two. God's creation exhibits unity in diversity. And we see this clearly in the human body. That's the example the Apostle Paul takes us to. Hey, it's perfect in the Trinity. It needs to become resident in the church. But let me show you that it's not just God who does this. God designed for the human physical body to example this for the church body. Verse 12, For just as the human body is one and has many members, or we would say has many organs, it has lungs and tongues and hearts and all of that, okay? For just as the human body is one and has many members or organs, and all the members or organs of the body, though many, form just one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, the church. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And the foot should not say, well look, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Well, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, well, where would the sense of hearing be? Where would the, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body. He put unity and diversity, each one of them, as He chose. And if all were just a single member or organ, where would the body in totality be? As it is, there are many parts and yet just one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable, 
and those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. We cover those up in polite society. With our more presentable parts, it doesn't require it. Rarely do you have to wear gloves unless it's evening gloves at a formal event, right? But we generally wear loincloths, even on our flannel graph characters in Sunday school. Or we have really strategically placed shrubbery when we explain Adam and Eve, right? So, uh, which of our more presentable parts do not require it? But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members all may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's think for a second here. You know these verses, this sounds, oh, this is simple. But it's not simple in how we live it. Friends, a body with only one organ is a monstrosity, not a body. A human body with only one organ is like one of those low-budget sci-fi movies with the brain in the jar and the electrodes, right? It's a monstrosity. It's not a body. A bodiless brain is grotesque, not picturesque. It might think, but it can't act because the brain needs a body to make it happen. A body with only one member is not just a monstrosity, but it would also be a tragedy because it couldn't function properly and it would perish immediately. It would die because it wasn't designed to stand alone. Think about that, church. No matter how much heart you've got, if you've got no lungs, you're done. And no matter how strong your muscles, if you can't produce white blood cells, the strongest fists and the mightiest kicks will be felled by the common cold and you will die. You see, the God who perfectly exhibits unity in diversity within the Trinity is a God whose creation reinforces that same notion. God has so brilliantly designed the human body that each part has a part and none of them function utterly independently. They function completely interdependently. And that's God's good design. That's the design the Holy Spirit says, look at the human body, now look at the church body. What you see in the Trinity and you see in the human body, God wants to see in the church body. So, so what is true biologically is what is true theologically when it comes to healthy ecclesiology. And that brings you to your final point today. Point three on our outlines is this. God's institution ought to exhibit unity and diversity as seen in a biblically functioning church. God's institution ought to exhibit unity and diversity, and we ought to see it in a biblically functioning church. So I'm going to read you, starting at verse 4, and keep this in mind, that God wants His church to function with unity in diversity. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now look at verse 7. To each individual Christian in that local church is given the manifestation of the Spirit. You're given a spiritual gift. It's yours. It's a grace gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't choose it. You can fan it into flame. Or you can bury it. You cannot use it. You can let it rust. But He gave it to you for why? For the common good. 
for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the Spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now verse 11. All of these diversities are empowered by one and the same Spirit, unity, who apportions to each one individually as He will. You're here and not in heaven because God has a plan for you to do something to bring Jesus' glory in this body. And whatever church God sends you to, if you tomorrow get told, well, guess what? The office is shutting down and you'll be moving to Guam if you want a job. God's going to put you in a local church in Guam and there's some pivotal reason why you are needed to make that body function. It may take you a little while to understand it, but according to the Word of God, it's true. It's true. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the, body, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to, think, uh, to drink of one Spirit. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there are two types of sinful uh, individualists when it comes to our co-religionists in this. There are two types of sinful individualists, uh, individualists when it comes to this issue. The first unbiblical individualist looks around the church and says this, they don't need me. That's a lie. According to the Word of God, that's a lie. They don't need me. So you don't use your gifts because you don't think what you have is useful. There's another kind of unbiblical individualist and you know what he says? I don't need you. I don't need them. I don't need this. Both of those people are sinfully wrong according to the Word of God. If the devil's telling you, they don't need you, that's wrong according to the Word of God. And if the devil's telling you, hey, Prouty, you don't need them, you don't need this, that's wrong too. Friends, that's uh, theologically what we call stinking thinking. It's unbiblical thinking. It leads to a poorer church that does less for Jesus because those who called are omitted and not showing up. There's an old proverb that says, a lot of different flowers make a bouquet. A lot of different flowers make a bouquet. And if you've ever been handed a beautiful bouquet, eh, it's got baby's breast, it's got stuff I can't define, it's got whatever's in season, it's got a bunch of different stuff. That's what makes it. A bouquet. Some of those are stunning visually. Some of them bring the fragrance. Some of the ones that look the best smell the least. And some of the ones that look the best die the first, and so you're glad you have the other thing that didn't look so pretty in the beginning, because now that it's withering, that's the thing that's still there. That's a lot like church. Some of us smell better than the others. <laughs> some of us look better than others. Some of us hang on better than others. But it takes a lot of different flowers to make a bouquet. If a local church is missing what God desired, what God designed, what God decreed that that church ought to be possessing, we can't fully experience God's blessing. If I were to take a laptop and I were to say, well, there's a lot of keys here. I don't need all these keys. Some of these keys are superfluous. And I just reached down and I ripped out the letter E key. Could I still use my laptop? Probably could. Probably could. But I wouldn't be able to write as well and as clearly as if I had an E key. 
And then if I decided, you know, this E key has made the computer lighter by throwing it out, let's throw away the C key. And suddenly, just taking away two keys on that keyboard, you're going to find there's a lot of text that no longer makes sense. There's websites I can't access at all because I need an E or a C key to get there. There's spreadsheets that won't process because I can't put in the C or the E. The idea that someone is not needed in something a master designer has designed, and God is a lot smarter than whoever built our keyboard, amen? He has built his church, he died for the church, he paid for it in blood, and he said, I'm going to give them all different gifts and I'm going to make them interdependent. The idea that someone is not needed in the body of Christ, which God is sovereignly building, is biblically ridiculous. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one as He chose. There are many parts but one body. Verse 24, God has so composed the body of Christ, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, that there may be no division in the body of Christ, but that the members of the body of Christ may have the same care for one another. If one member of the body of Christ suffers, all ought to suffer together. And if one member of the body of Christ is honored, all rejoice together. So equally, your gift may not seem as prominent and your presence might feel less important. But the assigning of gifts is a matter of God's wisdom and God's sovereignty. It's never an indication of our superiority or inferiority. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Is Jesus less glorious? Indeed, is Jesus less important because He was willing to condescend in the Incarnation? Or did that make him more glorious? According to Scripture, he was given the name that was above every name because he was willing to humble himself. Is the Holy Spirit less glorious or less important because his ministry resides in me and God the Father is in heaven, as it were? Some things there, he's omnipresent, so this gets difficult. But you're following the general gist of the illustration. Friends, the Trinity is the epitome of unity and diversity. This model shows us what it ought to be perfectly, and for it to function perfectly, there is dignity of all and humility by each. You know what breaks down in the church? We don't have dignity for all. We don't have humility right here. So the Trinity is the paragon of unity and diversity. And this paragon has widely, wisely established a pattern and he put it in his creation. We see it in the human body. We see it in the bee colony. We see that this paragon has produced this same pattern for the local church. And indeed the universal church. And that means... The Blues Brothers got it right. I've been waiting to use one of their references before I go. The Blues Brothers got it right. I need you. You need me. John Donne, those of you a little bit higher on the literary hierarchy than the Blues Brothers, John Donne got it right. No man is an island. 
And depending on your musical inclination, Bill Weathers got it right. Lean on me. When you're not strong, then I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. Friends, unity and diversity is helpful. Unity and diversity is beautiful. But most importantly, unity and diversity is biblical. As a church, we will either learn to exhibit unity in diversity more and more as we see the day approaching, or we will be lacking in many of the good gifts God is giving. We can wrongly aim for, for uniformity and conformity, and we will miss out of the richness of Jesus in all this. We can diminish our Lord's investment in our gifting by burying our talents and preventing kingdom-producing results. We can get offended by another brother and we could scamper over to Bedside Baptist and the comforting confines of Pastor Pillow. But that decision means that we won't be bringing the same kind of glory to the King we could do if we said, you know what? I need you. You need me. You have different preferences and passions. We are not the same, but we have the same Lord. I'm going to bring my contribution. And in humility... I'm going to bring a sacrifice of praise when this part isn't for me today. So we ought to be excited about. We ought to be committed to. Unity and diversity because we see it exhibited perfectly in the Trinity. We see it designed intentionally in creation and commanded clearly of Christ's church. Would you pray with me about that this morning? Father, make us like You. You perfectly exhibit unity and diversity within the Holy Trinity. No part of the Trinity fights for supremacy. Instead, there is humility, harmony, and a resultant, resplendent manifestation of Your glory. May Your church be glorious for our Jesus by our being harmonious and humble. When one of us suffers, may we come alongside them in love with the comfort we have received through Christ. When one is rejoicing, may we rejoice alongside them instead of harboring envy and being petty because You have blessed them. May we be busy bees with each part doing its part so this hive might thrive for the fame of Your name and that it might more effectively be proclaimed. That Your will on earth might be done in our midst, just as it is in heaven. May Calvary be a church where we love one another, for they shall know us by our love. May Calvary be a church where we one another well, just as so many Scriptures call us to one another well. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.